Instead, let, let there be a bipartisan effort made so we get true district boundaries. I live in the fifth district. I live at the very southern tip near 38th Street and, and Dandy Trail. And that district goes from there to Marion, Indiana. Now, something's fundamentally wrong with that. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Questions this weekend about coronavirus exposure in the White House after the president revealed that the VP's press secretary had tested positive. Much more later this morning. We'll also talk about the state's response to the coronavirus coming up. But we start with the other story making headlines here in Indianapolis and around the country. The police action shooting that was all captured on Facebook Live. We'll never see him again. I certainly understand the, the family's uh, uh, emotions, uh, so, you know, revolving around this. Uh, but, you know, we're going to handle this the, the way we do uh, all of our investigations. Uh, whether people choose to believe it or not, uh, it is going to be a fair and transparent investigation. A series of officer-involved incidents this week. Mayor Hogsett issued this statement saying our city experienced a series of tragedies that raise understandable questions and again revealed the scars of mistrust left behind by a national legacy of discrimination against communities of color. He promised a full investigation. The Marion County Prosecutor and Indiana Black Legislative Caucus asking for an external investigation. Congressman Andre Carson said there's a lot we're still learning about the police shooting, but here's what we know for sure. He said simply being black in America should not be a death sentence, but for countless people, it is. I spoke this week with State Senator Greg Taylor, who represents the district where this happened. Had the opportunity to speak to one of the family members of the victim of the shooting. Um, and right now, I think it's a time, I mean, it's a very bad time anytime something like this happens. But what we have to understand as a community is that a lot of people are frustrated right now just simply by the fact that we're in this COVID-19 situation. Um, but this uh, has exacerbated the community uh, outlook on this situation. I don't know a lot about um, what happened except that there was uh, gunfire and the young man is is uh, deceased, but uh, we've got to come together as a as a community to address these issues. And I think we have to have swift and thorough transparency in the investigation, and then we go from there. And you have called for body camera legislation at the state level. Why haven't we seen that come to fruition uh, more fully? Is it uh, purely a cost issue? I can't really tell you why the administration has not uh, put this uh, put body cameras on all the police officers. I think it's uh, both. It could be both financial and it could also be uh, policy. Um, you know. From, from my standpoint, it saves everybody. I, I think the legislation was two or three years ago the, when I submitted that legislation. And uh, these types of situations, had that uh, there to, had there been a body camera, we would be, have a more, we have, we'd have a clearer 
resolution to this situation. What more do you want to see at the state level in this regard? And are you concerned with state and city budgets likely uh, getting strapped here over the next couple of years that any hope for expanding body camera programs might be lost in some of those budget concerns now? Well, I take a different perspective on the budget concerns. Um, nobody wants to talk about the fact that if you had a camera on every police officer in an incident where they're they're you know they're either called into pursuit or anything like that, the benefit to that is you would probably have less lawsuits. I want to ask you about the state's response to the coronavirus crisis as well, and, and to some extent. Uh, there's been some police involvement, too, in terms of what do we do as a state in terms of actually enforcing some of these guidelines that have been put in place? Do you think we should be doing more in that regard? Well, first of all, let me talk about what is important. Social distancing has created a clear message for the community. Social distancing has lowered the transmission of this virus. In, in the communities that I've seen and the things that have happened in the city with these large gatherings of people, um, and most of them young people, um, we need to be more cognizant of the fact that this is only gonna help us get out of this sooner. If you don't spend one night in a large gathering like this, you may be able to spend 20 nights doing that a month from now. So um, I think the state's respond had, response has been uh, transparent. I don't agree with some of the reopenings that are happening. I think it's a, it's a very uh, huge risk that we're taking in the state of Indiana. Meantime, the number of coronavirus cases still on the rise in Indiana, with Marion County still assessing the reopening process. The state still, still dealing with the impact on the workplace and the economy. This week, I spoke with state treasurer and candidate for Congress, Kelly Mitchell. I want to ask you about the financial impact of this coronavirus crisis, both from your perspective as state treasurer and as someone who's running for Congress. There's been uh, quite a debate about the kind of assistance the federal government might have to provide to the states. Mitch McConnell had said he's not sure about bailing out the states, but there are a lot of states uh, that may need financial assistance. Indiana perhaps has more reserves than most, but certainly our budget will be stretched thin. Where do you stand on that debate over the federal government providing assistance to the states uh, as the economic impact of this crisis continues to unfold? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You know, and as you just said, the economic impact is indeed still unfolding. You know, we, we don't know the depth and breadth of it yet. Uh, there has been a lot of help um, in the uh, previous legislation, federal legislation. Uh, my office has uh, received $2.4 I believe, from the federal government, from the Coronavirus uh, Relief Act. Uh, that is meant for um, COVID-related expenses, so above and beyond budgeted expenses um, that an, an entity might have um, incurred costs that there's, you know, this is what that money is, is meant to cover. So that is beginning to um, be dispersed. I am in many conversations every week with treasurers nationwide as we all work together in this unprecedented time 
And indeed, Indiana came into this in a much better fiscal position than many states have. And, you know, as, as treasurer, as chief investment officer of the state, I'm really proud to have been a part of, of the reason we have a over $2 billion surplus and a balanced budget. Uh, we will certainly weather this better than some. But how badly will this affect our state's budget and our, our reserves? And I think, again, I, we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, it depends on um, what the federal government does. You know, they are talking about future help. One thing that hasn't been addressed is lost revenue. So while the money that has been sent to the states is to cover COVID-related expenses, it is not meant to cover revenue lost because of um, the coronavirus so that remains to be seen, uh, and those numbers we won't know uh, for some time. So what is the impact of a crisis like this in terms of uh, candidates getting attention, getting the financial resources they need for a campaign? Yeah, I am really proud. Um, my campaign has led in donations from individuals every quarter that I've been in this race. And um, we, by far, have exceeded others in raising money. In terms money. of campaign contributions from individuals. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, so, and so that, that is wonderful. That is, to me, speaks to uh, a tremendous amount of support for this race. Mitchell, though, is fifth among Republicans when it comes to cash on hand after the first quarter filings. Victoria Sparks leading the way after a personal loan. She is facing some scrutiny, though, this week, as we'll discuss with our panel later. Carl Brizzy also facing some questions about his taxes. I spoke with him one-on-one -on -one this week about the race and about this current health crisis. Are you concerned about how this primary will go procedurally in terms of turnout, in terms of safety in the midst of this crisis? Well, obviously, safety is the number one priority, and um, I, I, I do appreciate the efforts that are being made at um, sending out absentee ballots um, in Marion County. And I know that um, that the that the mail-in count, the request count, has been, you know, relatively high. So we'll see now with early voting, and then on June second, what the actual primary turnout numbers will be. You have a new ad out here in recent weeks talking about your candidacy, also talking about this crisis and China's role in all of this. What do you want to see Congress do in terms of our relationship with China moving forward? Well, look, there's no question, right, that China lied about this virus. There can be all sorts of debate about um, where and, and how it originated. But we do know this, that once the Chinese government knew that this virus was a problem, they sat on it. And then after they sat on it, they spread misinformation and disinformation, blamed the United States, blaming President Trump. China needs to be held accountable. And that's going to be one of the first things that I do um, if, I, if I get to Congress. On another topic, you were called out in a recent mailer from the Club for Growth, which suggested that you and your wife had been delinquent on your taxes. What's your response to that mailer that went out there in the district? Yeah, so those folks endorsed uh, Victoria Sparks. That's the anti-Trump group. And uh, they're being critical of me for disagreeing with the IRS in terms of how much money I owe. My wife and I paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes for that year. And, uh, and we're fighting over uh, what amount uh, we owe. And we think the amount is different than the amount they think. We've been fighting them for four years. And look, I mean, I work hard for my money and I'm not going to pay any more than I'm legally obligated to do. 
Uh, people don't often uh, win disagreements with the IRS. Uh, are you concerned this will be a, a lasting <laughs> issue here for you or your campaign? Well, it's, it's been going on for almost four years, so you're right. Um, you know, but look, I'm a fighter. And uh, again, I pay hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the government, and a lot of that money is squandered. And so to the extent that, that I have the ability to fight them, uh, you know, I'm going to. Race starting to get interesting. Coming up next this Sunday in Focus, a candidate for governor picks his running mate. But that process is also raising a lot of questions about his campaign. We'll talk about that with our panel next. All right, welcome back. It's time now to bring in our panel to talk about this week's top stories. Joining us online this week, Robin Winston, Mike Murphy, Alexandra Hudson, and Adam Wren. Let's start with former Democratic Party chair Robin Winston. This was a difficult week in the news in Indianapolis. A lot of outrage about this police-involved shooting. We've seen cases like this around the country, but seeing this play out here at home in the midst of this ongoing health crisis was quite a situation. And it manifested itself that there were people out in the street yesterday on Michigan Road. A lot of people are still asking questions about this. Uh, police officer unfortunately struck a, a female who was pregnant and she was killed. Uh, we had the shootings, we had the, the supposed ambush, and we had the really graphic video from Georgia of a person being shot simply for being out jogging. So in the middle of all that, you turn over for other news and it's COVID-19, it tests all of us and our ability to continue to be resilient in, the, in all this that's going on. Yeah, let's bring in columnist Alexandra Hudson. Alexandra, welcome. A, a lot of anger in America right now for a lot of different reasons, including the response to the coronavirus crisis and the many different feelings people have about what's going on. That's right. Um, and I think people, we can we can really celebrate the universal condemnation we've seen um, uh, against the, the violence against police officers and and also um, the the condemnation, unfortunately, of uh, of uh, Governor Holcomb when he when he uh, wasn't wearing his mask. I think people are really kind of catching on that that we're all a part of this. We all are um, all are in this together and have to be a part of um, of helping other people not 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 to contract and, and not to spread the virus. And so um, that's an encouraging uh, an encouraging note. Former GOP lawmaker Mike Murphy with us uh, today as well. Hey, Mike, um, I want to get your thoughts on the week that was and also on former Governor Mitch Daniels, who had a column this past week in The Washington Post called When This Pandemic Is Over, Let's Avoid the Partisan Blame Game. There's been a lot of reaction to his column for a lot of different reasons. Well, first of all, Mitch has the um, advantage of having a little bit of, of objective distance, so to speak, from the political world right now which gives him a little more leeway to, to make statements and, and frankly, to impart some of his wisdom. I mean, he's an amazing man in many ways. And I, I really agree with him, whether it was the first, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Gulf War, the, the Iraq War, where people you know, uh, voted for it and then turned around and said they were against it all the time, all along, and then started blaming other people, whether that's gonna, you know, that's gonna continue, as he said, into what he calls hindsight recrimination disease, which I think is, is not only accurate, but, but somewhat funny if you can make a joke during these times. Um, I think he's, he's spot on. He has an ability to see the, the kernel of, of truth and to drill right in. I remember a long time ago, 1988, when John Mutz lost to Evan Bayh, I still have his column from December of 1988 when he, when he said, in this case, GOP should stand for go out in peace. He said, we'll have our time again someday. 
little did he know that he would be the guy who brought the Republicans back 16 years later. But, you know, politics and, and big events like the, the uh, coronavirus have their own momentum, and nobody should be accusing anybody of being unpatriotic or profiteering or having anything less than the best interests of the United States in mind. Even for me, somebody who's not a big fan of Trump, I don't think he's purposely trying to screw up. And let's, I think we need to all be aware of that. Let's bring in Importantville's Adam Wren, who's also a contributing editor at Politico in Indianapolis Monthly. Uh, Adam, a lot of scrutiny, though, certainly uh, on the White House throughout this, and, and also questions now even about exposure uh, within some of the White House staff. But back to that Mitch Daniels column, um, your reaction to that in terms of uh, this, the ongoing scrutiny that they have faced? the administration. You know, that's right. I agree with a lot of what Mike has said. Uh, Mitch Daniels has been a leading voice, uh, you know, throughout the last few years on a number of issues in higher education, but particularly on the coronavirus, he's laying out some fairly bold uh, strategies for bringing students back to campus this fall. And in some quarters is, is taking heat uh, for that. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he, he walks through this. A number of other university presidents and policymakers uh, at every level of government are looking to him as someone who may have an innovative plan for how we can exist in the time of coronavirus before there's a vaccine. All right, let's also talk about uh, some Indiana political news here this week. Uh, the candidate for governor, Woody Myers, in the Democratic Party picking a running mate. Robin, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. Also a bit of a delay here in the process after he uh, missed the initial deadline set by the party to name a running mate. What does that tell you about uh, the inner workings here of the Myers campaign? Well, first off, it means it's deliberative. Um, Woody really tried to make a difference in what he was doing. And he picked Linda Lawson, who has a lot of experience in the Indiana House. She comes from Northwest Indiana, where she has been a stellar representative, former law enforcement officer, former member of the Hamlin Police Department. So she's gonna have a lot of vigor in this campaign, which he desperately needs. And she's gonna make sure that some things come to the forefront, particularly where she's talked about women's issues, domestic violence issues, I think it's going to be a very spirited campaign. Mike, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I served with Linda for several years. She has outstanding integrity and character. Um, she's a smart lady, but very pragmatic. And she was always respected by both sides of the aisle. I see nothing but advantages to the ticket. The problem is she's going to be helping on a ticket, which is doomed to lose. I mean, Woody, another, you know, I worked with him at Anthem for many years. He has 9% um, uh, positives and 65% of the voters don't even know who he is. At the end of the year, he had $2,000 in the bank and and uh, and uh, Holcomb had $7.25 million. It's a, it's a sinking ship, but I applaud Linda for at least uh, trying to help the party. And Alexandra, it does seem certainly as if the governor has a, a lot of advantages here when it comes to his reelection effort this year. It's true. He's had a very strong response, lots of support across the state. And of course, the exposure he's gotten uh, in his uh, in his uh, regular uh, briefings, updating the state about um, about the state's response. Um, and I think just broadly speaking, uh, elections and, and primaries, they're they're an opportunity for a fresh start, a fresh beginning. And and on that note, it's important that we hold our elected officials to incredibly high standards of, of transparency and honesty and integrity, because the people we elect are really a reflection of the populace that put them there.
Yeah, especially during this time. Uh, Adam, you also had some uh, interesting reporting this week on the 5th District Congressional Primary. Uh, candidate Victoria Sparts facing some scrutiny this week. That's right, Dan. As we get closer to the June uh, 2nd primary, knives are coming out, and Sparks is uh, really one of the, the top figures, a front runner in this race. And there are some open questions about how she came up with a $750,000 loan uh, that she used to fund uh, the last uh, few weeks of the campaign. Uh, she doesn't have a checking account. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of uh, liquid assets. And her campaign is refusing to answer uh, where uh, they got this money, from which particular asset it came from. And so until uh, she answers that question, a lot of the other, a lot of her Republican rivals are going to be making this an issue down the home stretch. And Mike, obviously this is a very crowded Republican primary for uh, uh, a seat in Congress uh, that uh, obviously is being closely watched this year. Well, it is. And I, first of all, I applaud Adam on the story. We'll see how, you know, what kind of uh, life the story has and if she is forced to answer any questions. Um, but you get back to where she came from, and I'm not talking about where she was born. I'm talking about Hamilton County politics. It amazes me that the Hamilton County Republican Party, most of them who are my friends, didn't vet her before she was literally handed a state Senate seat a year or two ago. And now she's she's off and running. Uh, we know, really, we're finding out today, we know a lot less about her than we thought we knew about her. Okay. And I think that gives an opportunity for Kelly Mitchell, for Beth Henderson, to uh, kind of avoid the heavy traffic, avoid the wrecks, and yeah. maybe move into the lead. We'll uh, talk about it more on our podcast. Guys, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Stick around. We'll be right back with more after this. All right, thanks for joining us this week. Much more to come on Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation and on our podcast. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. Happy Mother's Day. As we continue here on the podcast, uh, we're talking about the 5th District Congressional race. On the TV broadcast earlier, we showed some of the fundraising figures. We talked about Victoria Sparts leading the way in terms of cash on hand and also some of the reporting Adam did on the Sparts campaign. Um, but Robin, also you have a Democratic candidate here, Christina Hale, who's still leading the Republicans in terms of cash on hand. Can she maintain an advantage like that throughout the year? Or is, is that advantage she holds now purely because this is such a fractured Republican field with so many candidates in the race? Oh, I think Christina is going to raise more money than the Republican candidate will for the fall. They're the ones that have the cast of been her running for that seat. So they've got a lot of people that have split their money up. But Christina has stayed focused. Same thing she did whenever she won a major race in the Indiana House. Uh, she's picked up a lot of endorsements, a lot of money. We still have a primary. And remember, we're tracking the numbers in this county and, and in Hamilton County. The absentee balloting is not really producing the vote that people thought. So one thing to keep in mind as we move forward, Dan, is how many people are actually going to show up on June 2nd and vote? It's a good question. I tend to think more people are going to show up than some of my counterparts. But um, right now, the absentees are not cranking the kind of numbers that people thought would take advantage of voting by mail. And, and you also have to wonder uh, about the national implications, uh, the national dynamics when it comes to a race like the 5th District race. Adam, I saw you reported this week uh, the Hale campaign did not want to respond to questions uh, about Joe Biden and the Tara Reid story uh, and uh, their thoughts on that situation. 
That's right, Dan. Uh, you know, Christina Hale has been an outspoken, admirably so, outspoken advocate for victims of sexual harassment. She was one of the first people to pen a column in the Indianapolis Business Journal during the Brett Kavanaugh uh, affair that played out publicly. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Tara Reid, um, you know, she has denied five opportunities to comment about whether or not she still supports the former vice president as her party's nominee and whether she believes the claims of Tara Reid. Uh, so I do think that this will be an ongoing issue for her as well until she uh, puts a comment or a statement out explaining her positioning on this. Mike Alexandra, just broadly speaking, local races like this fifth district race, does it all boil down in, in some respects to national politics this year, especially in the midst of this crisis we're all experiencing? I think to some extent, yes. I mean, um, that, that, that our national uh, discourse is and it invariably affects and informs what happens locally. And, and I think, you know, more and more often we're seeing um, uh, local races be a referendum on <laughs> on our president, for better or for worse. Um, and so just seeing the way in which our discourse has become uh, federalized and nationalized, I think, is, is one reason uh, for the heightened political polarization that we see. Um, so I think keeping things as local as possible is, is is one important way to, to, to keep things relevant and also also less contribute to less polarization in our discourse. We try to keep it pretty local on this broadcast, right? Uh, yeah, but obviously right. <laughs> national uh, politics, certainly those dynamics always apply. Mike, your thoughts? Well, Dan, speaking of local, you know, one, one issue we really haven't talked about or one block of uh, office holders we haven't really talked about much this year because it's a foregone conclusion are the Republican supermajorities in the House and the Indiana Senate. They are the most, at least for my party, <laughs> the most important to maintain, and they will maintain them, by the way, because they are the ones who are going to redistrict in 2021 yeah, with the census, yeah. and set the congressional boundaries. Right. Uh, no matter what happens between Christina Hale and and either uh, you know Kelly Mitchell or Beth Henderson or Victoria Sparks or whoever, the fact is that we, as a Republican Party, are going to set those boundaries. It's going to be another seven to two split because we don't want to get greedy and try to get eight to one because that's 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 pushing it too far. But we'll be seven and two. And if Christina Hale wins, we'll have the opportunity to redistrict that and she'll be a one term congresswoman. Robin. That's exactly the reason that we need to get rid of the kind of partisan gerrymandering that we affect all the time. They have a supermajority safe seats and you just heard one of the a good friend of mine and a good commentator say if we get the chance to use our scalpel we're going to make he sure she it. has a district that's going to be tough to defend instead let let there be a bipartisan effort made so we get true district boundaries i live in the fifth district i live at the very southern tip near 38th street and and dandy trail and that district goes from there to marion indiana now something's fundamentally wrong with that but I'll tell you guys, you know, uh, we, uh, you're right. We will use the scalpel. We'll design the districts within the federal, whatever the Justice Department will allow us to do, certainly. But I'll tell you, Robin, Eddie Mayhern sure had fun drawing districts in 2000. Uh, what was that? 2001 or whenever that was. I mean, he was he was in charge and he screwed a lot of Republicans, gave some districts, some legislators, districts that were 75% different than what they were, were representing at the time. The so, party in charge draws the maps. Um, but Dan, can I say this in, yeah. in defense of Christina? She wins a district that is not overwhelmingly, she's won a district that's not overwhelmingly 
uh, Republican. I mean, Democrat. Her she's been able to House do well district. there in a House district. So she's proven to be a vote getter uh, among a Republican base that now is extending into Hamilton. All right, we've talked politics a little bit here. Um, Adam, Alexandra, want to get your final thoughts as well on just uh, this difficult week in the news here in Indianapolis and what continues to be a difficult time in the news uh, here and around the country. Adam? Yeah, uh, Dan, you know, I think one of the public officials who we haven't talked about so far today is uh, Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett. Uh, if you look at the situation that he is dealing along with his police chief, Randall Taylor, this is certainly probably inarguably the most difficult season of his of his governance. And he's really going to have to find ways along with his police chief to, to hold the city together because it seems like we're ripping apart uh, at the seams in the middle of a pandemic. And so his leadership, I think, will be tested in the coming days. And it'll be an open question as to whether or not he's able to guide the city uh, through this very fraught moment, racially speaking. Alexandra, your, your thoughts on, on this uh, difficult week here in the news? Yes, yes. I mean, back to your initial uh uh, comments about Mitch Daniels' uh, op-ed in the Washington Post. Like we know that difficult moments like this, we know we know from times of crisis in the past, they can either divide us um, or they can unite us. And uh, you know, looking at times like 1776, World War II, 9/11, uh, and and looking reflecting on these other other times of crisis um, that resulted in an extraordinary national unity, we're already seeing remnants of that uh, of that in our in our current moment today. And, and, and Mitch Daniels has some incredible insights into how we can uh, build on those lessons and implement lessons of, uh, of how to maintain that unity uh, going forward. We will all certainly need uh, to come together in, in, in some ways, uh, even during an election year, for sure. Alexandra, Adam, Mike, Robin, thank you all so much for joining us on TV and on the podcast this week. We appreciate it. Stay safe. We'll see you soon.